Good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. As Bria said, my name is Matt, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and it is exciting to be able to be together uh, in the midst of a new year, in the midst of September, which feels like it's near to October, which is near to cool temperatures, right? I think we all agree that that's the good news that is coming our way. I have better news, though, and that's the news of the gospel, so we're going to jump into that. The good weather is pretty awesome. Um, Parker Palmer, which is a name difficult to say repeatedly fast if you try it, he wrote a book called Let Your Life Speak. It's a little tiny book and it is fantastic. And he makes this statement as he kind of recounts an evaluative time in the middle of his life, he says this. He said, I realized that I was doing an incredibly noble job of living someone else's life. I was doing an incredibly noble job of living someone else's life. Now, those this two words are, are haunting, and, and for many of us, those words may be exactly what we find ourselves sensing about our true selves right now. Who we've become and who God's designed us to be, well, they're just two different kinds of people. With all the best intentions in the world, we have nobly become someone or not. Well, Professor Howard Hendricks, uh, who, if you know anything about him, he may have had more influence over Christian education than maybe anyone in the last hundred years. Prof. Hendricks, um, he knew just how easy it was to be somebody else. So to help his students, many seminary students, um, think about their lives, he, he would draw this big funnel on a, on a chalkboard. That gives you a sense of how long it was. He'd draw this big chunk, this funnel on a chalkboard. And then at the top of the funnel, he would draw this, this sequence of X's at the top. And he'd say, listen, th these X's are all the things that you can do. These are the things that you can do. And then he, at the bottom of the funnel, he would draw this big X. And he would say, this is the one thing that you must do. This is the one thing that you must do. And Prof. Hendricks, like only he could, using timing, he'd let that sink in for a second, and then he would strike them with the reality of the true lesson. And this is what he would say. He said, the more successful you have, sorry, the more successes, he said it so well I can't even read it right. The more successes you have in your life, the more can-dos fill up the top of your funnel. But most opportunities are distractions in disguise. If you're not careful, he would say, you will spend your entire life doing all the things you can do and never find the one thing that you must do. So what is your one thing? This is a question that we're going to try and kind of come at in a couple different ways this morning. But it's the question that asks, what, what, what burns within you that you can't deny? What lives in you that must somehow at some point get out? Now, maybe once you had a sense of that and it's just gotten dulled over the years through disappointments or the demands of life or, or maybe you've just been afraid of naming it because it wouldn't work in your context. So you've pushed it aside for, you know, respectable, noble reasons, as Palmer would say. Or maybe you just never knew, maybe you never even asked the question, but you've always had a sneaking suspicion that there must be. Well, the good news is that we're not alone. 
and trying to wrestle with the struggle of what does calling look like. And we've been spending some time with the prophet Isaiah, not with Isaiah, with Jeremiah, with the prophet Jeremiah for the last couple of weeks with intentionality because he's someone who struggled with the idea of calling and identity. So let's look back at the last couple of weeks. In the last couple of weeks in our series here on purpose, right, we're looking at discovering and delighting in God's calling. So far, we've examined this life of Jeremiah as he's been called, as he's been invited to live out his one-of-a-kind identity with God that each of us has from God, believing that we are indeed more unique than we think. And two weeks ago, I'm sorry, this last week then, we looked at the reality of God's intentional design in us as we look at the false images, the false understandings of ourselves we talked about how we can turn to God to have him help us know and see what that is and what that looks like, to learn from him who we truly are. Well, today we're going to build on these two ideas as we look at one idea, and that is, what does it look like for us to embrace the place of God's calling grace? What does it look like for us to embrace the place where God's grace is available for his calling? So we find ourselves this morning in Jeremiah chapter 20, and we're catching the prophet in a pretty much significant moment of personal crisis, a crisis of conviction. Now, he's done his best so far to, to live out what God's given him to live out, his one-of-a-kind divine design and calling, but it's been met with a tremendous amount of resistance, rejection, and ridicule by this community. If you look at the beginning of chapter 20 of Jeremiah, what you see is uh, you see Jeremiah having declared all that God's told him to say and he literally gets beat up by the high priest, struck either by the fist or maybe by a, by a stick. And then they throw him in the stocks or in some form of a prison right by the temple gate of the, hotel, of the, temple, gate of the temple. So, so here is God's prophet getting God's words, getting a beat down from God's priest for saying what God's called him to say. And he's discouraged. He's struggling. Been preaching in a way that's threatening the status quo, and he's trying to call for reform and change the idolatry and the hypocrisy that Israel's living out, and he's calling them back to God. This is good and noble. It's the right invitation by God through a man, and and yet the rejection and the resistance has taken a toll on him. And you can listen to those words as we begin Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 7. Listen to Jeremiah. He says, Oh Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry aloud, I shout, violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. If I say, I will not mention him, or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart as it were a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. For I hear many whispering, terror is on every side. Denounce him. Let us denounce him, say all my close friends watching for my fall. Perhaps he will be deceived. Then we will overtake him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly shamed. 
for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord of hosts, who tests the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for you, for to you have I committed my cause. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, here in chapter 20, Jeremiah, he, he's, ready, he's ready to give up on God, and he's ready to give up on, on life almost itself. He's angry at God for what his life has become. He doesn't look like a very unique design and destiny. He's in full-fledged identity crisis at this juncture. But it's in this crisis that, that Jeremiah begins to recover a few truths about his identity. And, and because he learns to embrace, embrace them instead of ignoring them, it makes all the difference in who he ends up becoming. Which leads us to our first point, and that is calling is what you can't help but do. Calling is what you can't help but do. And we see that in verse 7 through 9. Those verses invite us into Jeremiah's struggle, right? His honest, real, raw emotions are not hidden before the Lord. His conversation with God is like the kind of conversation that I don't know, maybe you have with God, but don't tell other people. This is in the Bible. It's this beautiful invitation. So this is another sermon, but it's a beautiful invitation to be, bring the real you that we talked about last week to the real God. And that's exactly what Jeremiah does. He feels deceived. He feels disconnected. The, the boy is distraught. Let's look again at verse 7 and 8. He says, oh, Lord, you have deceived me, and I, and I was deceived. I thought this was going to go differently. You're stronger than I, and, and I have, and you have prevailed. This is the reality of my life. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry aloud. I shout, you know, the things that God, you're telling me to say, which is violence and destruction. For the words of the Lord have become to me a reproach and a derision all day long. You, can, you, can you hear it? He's ready to give up. He's ready to go about his life, to go at life without God. He's ready to abandon his call. He's right there at the edge. And then verse 9. Verse 9, Jeremiah gives words to what those of us who, who, who know what it looks like to live out of a strong sense of calling know deep, deep down inside, and that's this. Jeremiah says, if I say, so, so I, I want out, it's been terrible, but if I say, I, that's it. I will not mention him or speak in his name anymore. But he says, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I can not. There are times when we would quite honestly like to not embrace the calling that God's put in our lives, the places he's placed us to move into that calling. We don't want to do it anymore. Maybe we feel like we can't do it anymore. Our only problem is that we cannot not do it either. We cannot not do it either. Like a fire in our bones, it has to come out of us. Because in some days, and on some days, the only thing that's worse than living our calling is not living it. That's what Jeremiah's experience is telling us. It speaks clear words of who we are and what we're called to do. And it's a challenging truth, honestly, because 
we're called to something, it doesn't mean that it's going to go well. It doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. That we're not exempt because we have a sense of God's calling and a clear movement in it from the pain, the suffering, the despair, the rejection, and the depression that might come with it. Living out of our call does not mean that every day is a good day at all. Because many people ignore this truth. They stop embracing the place that God's called them, where his grace abounds. Instead, when times get tough or things go wrong, some of us just assume that there's something wrong with what God's called us to. And so we go searching for a clear path to a lesser life. But a sense of, true sense of calling, well, it just will never ultimately let us do that. Because even though a lesser life may be or may seem easier, in the end, it won't satisfy because we have been made, we have been created, we have been designed by God for real purpose. So loved ones, there's something worse than suffering in this life. And that's having nothing worth suffering for. There is something worse than suffering during this life, and that's having nothing in our lives worth suffering for. And so let me ask you, have you identified what's in your life that is worth suffering for? Have you examined your, your passions, your, your abilities, the context, your ideal context, to name that one thing that you must do no matter what? To the degree that we're willing to do that and to press into the pain and embrace that for our purpose's sake, for God's sake, we will experience surprising satisfaction. And it's what Jeremiah's painful embrace of his God's grace reveals to us. Speaking God's word is no longer something that he can merely just do. It's something that he must do. It is burning in him. And it's a test of pain that is revealing it to him. And if you think about it, I mean, I was just at CBS this week, right? I went through and there was like two aisles full of pain relievers. I mean, of every kind. And that's great, right? I'm, I'm, I'm super grateful. This morning I woke up, had a little bit of a headache, and so I took a couple of Tylenol. Have a little bit of indigestion, pop a couple of Tums, right? If you sprain your ankle, you know, a little bit of, a little bit of Advil will take care of that. It's, it's fantastic. It's so great. Everyone wants to get rid of the pain as soon as possible, right? And oftentimes we can. Entire industries exist around this. Everyone's looking for an easy way to get rid of pain in their lives. Above all, we're told that we can have relief from our pain quickly. We should ponder whether some of these efforts, and not necessarily in the physical side, though maybe. Our efforts to get rid of pain is robbing us of something more valuable. And that is our passion. You see, it's impossible to talk about calling or purpose and not talk about passion. And it's impossible to talk about passion and not talk about pain. The, the, the very root word of passion in Latin is the word pain. It's what we call it the passion of the Christ. Because it's in 
in the midst of pain and through our pain that God forms our passion. And it's not a coincidence, I think, that as a culture, we're so addicted to numbing our pain in any particular way, and yet we find ourselves to be in the midst of a purpose and calling crisis. Passion is not a wish. It's not an emotional wish. No, passion is a conviction that becomes contagious because it withstands the test of pain. It's a conviction that becomes contagious because it can go through pain and it can remain. More than that, it's most often in our pain that our passions are formed. It's usually in the pain that our abilities are grown. It's frequently in our pain that our ideal context becomes revealed. Pain is not opposed or opposite of calling. It's awesome, often the very incubator in which our calling grows. I thought about this when it relates to one of my favorite characters in the Bible, which is uh, the, the prophet Daniel. Now, Daniel's call, and I, I spent some time in Daniel this week, and I was like, all right, I'm going to try to do the work of figuring out what was Daniel's call. If we're going to try to articulate down to one sentence, maybe 15 words, what was Daniel's call from God? So this is what I came up with, and Daniel can tell me one day if that was close to correct. But I thought that Daniel's call was probably something like this. Daniel exists to honor God and to love others by stewarding life through God's wisdom and sharing understanding of God's vision with those in power. That's kind of my summary of what I think the call of Daniel's life in light of what I see, in light of what God reports, this is what seems like his call. And that is to steward life, like a guy was a ruler and in charge of a ton of stuff, through God's wisdom and sharing that and the understanding of God's vision with those in power. And I've got proof text for it because, you know, I went to seminary. Um, as for these four youths, it says in Daniel chapter 1, right at the beginning of the book, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams, verse 20, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all the kingdoms. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, isn't that just a great peachy call? Isn't it great? Daniel's there the whole time. I mean, this is from Nebuchadnezzar, and there's like, there's like I mean, the entire kingdom gets flipped upside down, and Daniel's still there. He's there with Cyrus when they end up sending out the decree for there to be the rebuilding of the temple and the sending back of Israel. Like, he has like a little charmed life, Daniel. Or does he? No, Daniel's call was forged and confirmed by pain, by difficulty, and by rejection. Think about Daniel chapter 1. He's been brought into exile. He's getting great food, but he's without his family. He's without his, his friends. He's without culture. He's without his faith. And, and in Daniel chapter 1, he's already faced with the reality that he's either going to compromise who he is, what he values, or he's going to follow God. Immediate difficulty. And by the wisdom of God, he moves in. Oh, but then we get to chapter 2. Should we get a break? No, no. Chapter 2, the king has a dream. No one can interpret it. And if you're the king and no one can interpret your dream and you're Nebuchadnezzar, you just decide you're just going to kill them all. Because that's got to help you, right? Like that's got to be motivation for someone to tell you something. And Daniel's being led off to be slaughtered. He's like, hey, so why are we dying? 
And he says, well, I actually could interpret the king's dream. And he's brought in in the midst of like the uncertainty of is he going to live or lose his head in the moment? And he interprets the dream. He speaks the understanding of God's visions to those who are in power. And from then on, it goes great. No, no, from then on, it doesn't go great. He's living out his calling and he's having to speak to kings about the fact that they're going to be dethroned that night. You get all the way to chapter six in Daniel and he's about to get promoted. So this is like a whole new kingdom. Daniel's made it through all these things. He survived somehow. And he's about to be promoted to the number one position in the land and people get a little jealous. The other satraps, the other, the other wise men, they get jealous. And so they trick the king into doing a decree about prayer and Daniel prays anyway. Next thing you know, he finds himself in a lion's den. Passion is a conviction that becomes contagious because it withstands the test of pain. Daniel had no enchanted life. He had a clear sense of calling. Pain's not the opposite of calling. It's often the incubator in which calling grows. Well, if calling is what we can't help but do, then point two is convictions are what we can't do without. Convictions are what we can't do without. Now, Jeremiah's pain is not limited to the physical pain of being thrown into the stocks and staying there overnight. No, circumstances get worse. It's not just his body, it's his soul. Let's look back at verse 10. He says, For I hear many whispering. Terror is on every side. Denounce him. Let us denounce him. Say, who? All my close friends. Watching for my fall. Rooting on me going down. Perhaps he will be deceived. Then we will overcome him and take our revenge on him. Listen, Jeremiah's aching for the hypocrisy of the people. He feels it in his bones, he says. He longs for acceptance, though, within a community and, and, and friends. He desperately desires truth to be revealed. There are these deep convictions that we see kind of in a budding form here, and then they, they emerge even more through the words and the passions of verse 11 and 12. He says, but the Lord is with me as a dread warrior or a mighty one. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly shamed, for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord of hosts, who tests the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind, let me see your revenge upon them, for to you have I committed my cause. I've taken my cause, which you have given me, and I'm going to commit it to you. While it might have been a lot easier for Jeremiah to cater to the expectations of the world around him, he simply couldn't imagine a community, a set of friendships without authenticity. He would never be at home in a world in which the values of the kingdom were an illusion. 
He refused to settle for the status quo if the status quo was ultimately going to be leading to some form of a dead end. These deep convictions of Jeremiah, these, these central values motivated Jeremiah at the core of who he was. He couldn't imagine doing life without them because to settle for that kind of life was not to live life at all. Ultimately, Jeremiah could only look to the Lord, right? He entrusts himself to the Lord to validate his core convictions. And he had placed his hope in the Lord that the, that the Lord was going to be the one who was going to cultivate that kind of a community for him. Jeremiah trusted that God would confirm those, those convictions of his. And in the end, his core convictions would be shown to Israel as another way to go. And here's the thing. Not many agreed. Actually, very few did, but a, f a few did. When all was said and done, though, Jeremiah's commitment to his core convictions left a lasting legacy for the children of Israel and ultimately for the church. Jeremiah is quoted multiple times in the New Testament because he was able to live out his calling in the midst of pain. If calling is about what we're but we can't help but do, then our convictions are the things that we can't do without. You see, see calling, we're talking about calling, we're talking about the what question. The what question of our life. What are we called to do? But our convictions are the why, the values. They answer the why question of our lives. Why am I called to it? What's the motivation underneath? You see, together, our calling and our, and our convictions, they, they name the essence of our unique identity. And within these things, and without these things, though, which is, which is far too uncomfortable, our life is just numb. Without a clear sense of calling and a clear sense of committed com commitment to convictions, life ends up just being banal. Our souls basically living on, on oxy, we exist, but we don't truly live. The fire that's shut up in our bones either burns us out or fizzles away. And we live lesser lives as lesser versions of ourselves. And it's morass. But that's not what we're made for. That's not why God takes the values that he has and infuses them into us as people through the midst of, in the midst of pain, in the midst of our stories. He infuses kingdom values into our souls. And that's what he does, I believe, with Daniel. I took the luxury of being able to say, hey, okay, so what are Daniel's, what are Daniel's values? What are his convictions? I think we see a few pretty clear ones. Here are my sense of Daniel's four top Values, his four top convictions. His first, it would be, I think, stand firmly. Because God's ways are greater than men's customs or laws. Stand firmly. Because God's ways are greater than men's customs or laws. I think his other value would be trust patiently. Because kings and lions and demons all answer to God. Declare boldly, because what God has shown must be shared, even when it's uncomfortable and even when it's dangerous. And lastly, pray faithfully, 
because that's where wisdom and power come from. Those seems to be the whys behind the what of Daniel's life, the, the core convictions, the core values, and they reappear repeatedly over and over again. So what, what are your core values? What, what, are, your commit, what are your convictions that, are, that God has uniquely embedded into you? I came up with a little set of questions here that might help you kind of reflect on that or think of what they look like. So here's a, here's a set of questions that might help you. Core value questions. What, what motivates you most deeply in life? What are those things? Or, or what would people say you value most if they watched you make all of your key decisions? Or maybe another way to ask this is what ideals do you want to define your life? Or what convictions do your heroes model or stand for? Or what is always true about you, no matter what you're doing, where you are, and who you're with? Those are core value type questions. They help us synthesize and, and clarify you can take a picture of them if you want. I'm going to post them on, on, on our Facebook page. Oh, you can't take a picture of them anymore. Those are the questions to be asking on your drive home this afternoon. Some of you already know. I, I know because I've talked to you. You have a clear sense of like, here, here's, here's my set of core values, the things that, that I'm convinced of and, and the convictions out of which everything I do comes out. For many of us, we don't know. You see, our... Our values aren't what we do. Our values are what characterizes everything we do. They're not, they're not what you do. Your values are what characterize everything you do. They're the, they're the why underneath the what. So I thought it might, might be helpful since at least a certain number of you know me relatively well. I thought I would share with you a couple of my own values. And it'd be an interesting exercise to see if like, you know, have you seen these? Do you see these exhibited? Not as a what, but as, a, as the why. So here's a couple of mine, kind of my four core values. The first is, uh, is choose belonging. Choose belonging because grace means that I've been received home and given a new people. I mentioned that our core convictions, our callings come out of pain oftentimes. They're, 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 well, I'm someone, as you, most of you know my story, like I, I grew up on the mission field. I grew up in kind of a multicultural kid, and so... Home is a confusing thing. It's not a simple thing for me. I, I was French and I was American. I wasn't completely French and I certainly didn't feel completely American. And so home and the idea of belonging to a people was very confusing to me and difficult. And for years I would posture. I would just be whoever you wanted me to be. And so the idea of God redeeming that and working through a real pain to actually recognize that belonging matters and that I have to choose it that belonging is something we choose. Now, if you know me long enough, and if you've been at RCC long enough, and if you come to me after you've been here for a while and you're like, man, I'm just having a really difficult time getting connected, what you're going to hear from me, and hopefully this doesn't dissuade, a couple of y'all are new, this doesn't dissuade you, but I'm like, well, are you choosing to belong? Because you don't belong by accident. You don't, honestly, we, none of us ever belong to anything significant by coming and sitting. We belong by entering, by engaging, by giving of ourselves. Y'all are in community, some bunch of y'all are in community groups, right? If you give nothing into it, how long will you last? 
If you don't give yourself to that set of people, you, don't, you won't last. So I, I value choosing belonging. And because of grace, it means that I've been received home and I've been given a new people. And that's what I, that's what I believe when I meet people or when, I, when I'm having a significant conversation. And that shows up by, that's demonstrated by me asking curiously, by, by, by choosing to share vulnerably and by believing that it's okay for me to take up space in relationships and not to just be what you want me to be. Another value of mine is to walk humbly because the way up is down and my weakness activates his strength. So walk humbly. And that's honestly demonstrated for me by seizing every opportunity to repent and ask for forgiveness. Every opportunity. Try to make much of God's work and other people's talents and contribution and try to make less and less of mine. That's aspirational because that's always a growing opportunity. But I believe that the way up is down. The third value is speak transformation because this is not the last day. And everyone, everyone needs reminding that God's in the business of redeeming hearts and changing lives. So I speak transformation. And that too is born out of my own story, my own pain. I believe it's never the last day. Like I believe in what's called the long story. And so for some of you, like you're in the midst of what I call the long story. Like you're real you're struggling. You're kind of the in-between place. You're not sure about God. You're not sure. You're in the middle of a long story and you're having a tough time. And one thing that I believe is that we get just to continue to speak transformation into your life. That God's not done. He's not done with you. There's a long story that God's writing. Which means I'm patient. Like he says, sometimes too patient. But I'm patient with the Pharisees and I'm patient with the, with the you know, permissive. People are like, woohoo, I'm freeing Jesus. I can do whatever I want. I'm patient, but I'm, I'm also challenging. I believe both of those are essential if we're going to walk together as people. And my last value is, is innovate strategy because, because new frontiers require creative thinking, new ideas, and focused plans. Hope's not a strategy. And that's demonstrated for me in just lifelong learning and challenging the status quo and, and failing and forward. Like, let's just fail forward. Let's try this. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And you've probably seen that play itself out here, right? Well, I mean, when we did, <laughs> we've tried several things in the last year that have not worked well at all, right? And then we try some things that have been really surprisingly meaningful. And I'm like, hey, let's just let's innovate. Let's, there's a new way to try something. And if it fails, so be it. A little egg on our face, it'll be fine. So those are my top four values. And they are not what I do, but they are hopefully what undergirds as much of, if not everything I, I do. And so what are yours? What are the core key convictions in you that are being lived out because God has impressed them and implanted them in you through pain and through life for his glory. What is always true about you no matter what you're doing, where you are, or who you're with? Well, many of us in the West don't remember um, the great Sichuan um, earthquake 
But on, on May 12th, 2008, there was an unbelievable 8.0, like staggering Richter scale earthquake that happened in China. It was right before the Olympics. I mean, the, the devastation of, of homes and buildings, the, the loss of life, the casualties are all over the place. It was the largest number of geohazards ever recorded, including 200,000 landslides. An area the size of Virginia was affected, and 69,000 people died. But in the midst of the havoc, the chaos, the destruction, there were a few heroes that emerged during that time. And one of the stories that came out of the wreckage is a story about a, a boy named uh, Lin Hao. Lin Hao was, was nine years old, and he was in the second grade. And as the hall monitor, he was walking down the hall when the earthquake struck and literally his entire building collapsed. All the walls fell down on he and his classmates and he was knocked unconscious originally. And then eventually he came to and was able to kind of squirm his way through and find a way out, out of the rubble. And then Lynn turned around and went back in. He went back into the rubble and he pulled out two of his classmates, literally pulled them out of the wreckage. Now, when the story about Lynn and, and some of the other heroes during that time began to kind of surface, you know, journalists wanted to interview. So journalists started asking him all these questions. And one of the, the key questions that was asked was by one of the reporters was, why did you go back into the rubble and not run away? And Lynn simply answered, I'm the hall monitor. It's my job. Like Lynn, each of us has a job to do. It's what we've been referring to as our calling. It's who we are. It's what we're called to do. Each, has, each one of us has something that we must do. And we could choose to live our lives outside of the rubble. But when we embrace our calling, we're choosing to move back in. Do we risk pain? Absolutely. Do we risk rejection? Most likely. Do we risk being caught in the aftershocks of a broken world? Pretty much a guarantee. Jesus says so. In this world, you will have trouble. But we do this because it's who we are. And because it's connected to the deepest whys of, that God has embedded in each one of us. And so motivated by the deepening sense of our conviction and a, and a clearer sense of our calling, we step into a broken world. And through the power of God, by the grace of his spirit, we make things beautiful again. Because we're followers of Jesus and that's what we do. So today I'm inviting you once again to work on identifying your calling and committing to it. I'm calling you to clarify your core convictions and, and, and to hold on to them. I believe that God is calling you to choose, choose a deeper path of finding the one thing that you must do and to live it out day after day, in good day and in bad days, even when it costs us. See, like Jeremiah, God is calling us to refuse to compromise the deep gospel convictions of our lives, the one that God has worked in, has infused into us, instead to trust him that he will validate them come what may. And after all, our God is the great dread warrior, right? The mighty one. 
and we know that we can commit our cause to him. Always, he is with us. And there's no way and no place he's proven that more than on the cross, that he is our great dread warrior, that we can commit our cause to him. If anyone knows what a calling is going to be lived out through pain, it's Jesus. If anyone knows what having in his heart a burning, a fire that is shut up in his bones that must be poured out, not, not, not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life for us, it's Jesus. If anyone was fueled by a God-infused convictions to enter the devastating reality of our world and of your hearts and of my life and to do so with grace and to do so with power, it's Jesus. And so this meal that we come to once again today is as a reminder that the God who, as Jeremiah says, who tests the righteous and who sees the heart and the mind, he has rescued us from futility to freedom, to real freedom. He's redeemed, he's redeemed us from, from sinful compromises in order to restore us to our calling and to refine us in our, in our convictions. And so we come to this table this morning with gratitude and with surety. Like Jeremiah, we may come at a place of confusion or, or wear or exhaustion or maybe, as Jeremiah says, you've destroyed me, God. Or maybe you come from a place of clarity and, and, and movement and, and joy. Regardless, we come to him as our dread warrior as the one who has gone before us to make a way for us to live out the reality of what he's done for us. And that changes us forever. Let's pray. Father, as the one who has made us, as the one who has redeemed us, as one who calls us and takes maybe the, the shattered, broken, twisted values that we have in our flesh and by your spirit turns them into significant, transformative, meaningful, God-purposed convictions. Lord, we ask that you, would, that you would show us, that you would give us the eyes of the heart, that we would be able to see and know what you're doing, what you have for us, what matters most to us because it's what matters most to you in us. Lord, we want to be the kind of people who live out our calling and who do so in community. And, and with the, the clarity and the purpose of that, we long to be able to have the kind of impact on the world where we're marked as people who go back in, who look like you. And so we receive this meal, not just because you're our example, though you are, but as the one who actually fulfilled the work of going back in and making a way for us. And so we receive your body and your blood for us with gratitude and with joy and with hope. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. If you belong to Jesus, this is your meal. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ.